0: This is the C-SPAN Radio podcast, taking a look at the people, the issues, and the events shaping Washington, the nation, and the world. I'm Steve Scully. Our guest this week is best-selling author and historian Michael Beschloss. We discuss with him the history and the tradition of presidential inaugurations, as well as past notable inaugural addresses, and we talked about how former presidents approached writing their speeches and the importance these remarks have on Inauguration Day. (laughs)
1: the idea of Inauguration Day is not that a new president sets aside, you know, what he believes in and issues that perhaps not everyone will agree with, but gives some sense that he recognizes that he is, as Johnson used to say, president of all the people. He doesn't get many chances, and this is probably the most important one.
0: Michael Beschloss, author and historian, as we prepare for the 58th presidential inauguration. We were looking back at some old films and pictures, and one thing that's remarkable, the consistency of these ceremonies every four years.
1: And that's sort of the idea. You know, the ceremony we'll see this week, it may not look exactly like George Washington taking his oath on that balcony in 1789 in New York City. But the amazing thing is that in a country that has changed as much as ours has over more than two centuries, this is one of the very few ceremonies that is relatively consistent and also one of the few times in which the nation really tries to come together uh, under a president who is trying
0: to unify it. What does it represent in your mind, this peaceful transfer of power? The last time we saw it, eight years ago, as George W. Bush uh, left the White House, and Barack Obama became our 44th president.
1: It's one of the things that, thank God, we do well, and probably we take too much for granted, because if you look at the number of countries in which this does happen with so little fanfare and you know with, with such little agitation, it really is unique, and I think Americans don't understand that.
0: The role of the military, the parade, and all the traditions that go along with that. What's its origins?
1: Well, this is the way that people used to celebrate, you know, oftentimes with par- parades that were, you know, oftentimes pretty military compared to an inor- inaugural parade nowadays. And one of the things is that if you just looked at inaugural parades through history, you knew nothing else about the president who was being inaugurated or the time he was coming to power, it would tell you an awful lot.
0: And how does it represent the president taking office? Because, as we well know, the inaugural ceremonies are organized by the, the U.S. House and Senate. The parade is organized by the transition committee, by the president-elect, right. and then, of course, you have the balls in the evening
1: and, and everyone combining on this. And one of the impressive things about our system, even this year, where people, you know, have tend to think that this has been nothing but tumult and division and conflict, is that you know you will have members of congress oftentimes who are of a different party from the incoming president oftentimes who may disagree with him totally nonetheless being the ones who put on this inaugural ceremony
0: let's talk about five inaugural addresses i want to go back to nineteen thirty three franklin d roosevelt set the stage for his remarks and why we are still talking about that speech today
1: well just about every president says i want an inaugural address like roosevelt's in nineteen thirty three and pretty hard because roosevelt was coming in at a moment the the banks were in big trouble were closing the country was in great depression they were looking to this president you know to fix the problem quickly and eleanor roosevelt said of that day it was almost terrifying because because you had the sense that whatever franklin told the members of congress to do and the people they would do not an experience that most presidents have and so roosevelt had to essentially tell people who had lost hope over the previous four years because of the depression huge unemployment that there was reason not only to hope but not to have fear so he says the only thing we have to fear is fear itself if you deconstruct that there were a lot of things to be afraid of in nineteen thirty three but so self-confident was he so uh, so great was the rhetoric that it gave people a lot of hope
0: what makes a good speech what do you look for
1: I think. Above all, it is that you you have the sense that you're actually listening to the president, that it is his voice, that he's talking about the deepest, most important things he wants to do as president. And not always does a new president follow that rule, because oftentimes they'll say, gee, I have to measure up to FDR or to Lincoln's second inaugural or some of the greats. And so they hire speech writers who write speeches that don't sound like them. For instance, Richard Nixon in 1969 I don't know this but he had to have told his speech writers I want this to be as great as John Kennedy his great rival his inaugural address in 1961 and the result is that that speech was almost a parody almost an imitation of the speech that Kennedy had given it didn't sound like Nixon it sounded like someone who was trying to imitate
0: what about Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address again one of those speeches that we still talk about a century and a half later
1: we do and that's because it was as sublime a statement of what was deep and important to Lincoln as you could get saying that with malice towards none, with charity toward none with charity for all. He was talking about the way he wanted to end the Civil War, which was coming very quickly, and also the idea of reconstruction that he had for the
0: South. And when Franklin Roosevelt was sworn in, it was March of 1933. Right. That changed after that. Why?
1: Uh, that changed because Roosevelt rightfully said and the congress said you know why do we have this long period from a presidential election in november to the inauguration of a new president As the constitution used to say fourth of march you have you know all those months in which you've got a lame duck president not to be not to be able to do very much and the country is sort of in limbo and so the result was that they moved the inauguration up and you could do that this in a way that you couldn't in the eighteenth century because you had modern communications and transportation so you didn't need all those months to get to a, a new administration the downside is that these inaugurations that were in march usually it was springtime and in washington it was rather pleasant now you know oftentimes the 20th of january meteorologically is sort of a horror show and it's not been
0: great for those who attend oftentimes the second of the five speeches john f kennedy 1961
1: that was something that Kennedy had the close help of a speechwriter, Theodore Sorensen, but a lot of it he did himself. And what it was, was it was a statement of Kennedy's feelings at that point, which were essentially I was elected by a very narrow margin, 100,000 popular votes. I've got to unify this country. I'm a minority president. So he thought what's the way I can unify the country? It's not to talk about domestic things, because people have big differences over civil rights and labor, taxes, uh, minimum wage. But on foreign policy, a vast majority agree. And so he said, let's do a speech that is almost 100% on foreign policy. And the result is that he's giving a statement of what America's purpose was in the world, and even more specifically in the Cold War, in 1961 did the trick. Republicans said that was a great speech. It gave Kennedy instant stature that he did not have before.
0: And of course the weather that day, cold well, and snow. Very
1: cold and enormous snow, but as it turned out that sort of added to the legendary sense of the day because people had to sort of dig their way out to get to the Capitol and there were some great metaphors there.
0: Let's talk about three more recent inaugurations. Uh, for the first time in history, the inauguration moved to the west front of the Capitol in 1981. Ronald Reagan sworn in as our 40th president, and you had a sitting president who was, up until that day, still trying to release those hostages in Iran.
1: That's right. And they moved it to the west because you can get more people on the west side of the Capitol, more open vista. And Reagan said, and I think he was expressing the views of a lot of people, better to have it on the west side of the Capitol where the new president is looking westward toward the american people all the way to the west coast rather than the east side which is the opposite of that and reagan made use of that in that speech
0: in two thousand one, george w bush uh... one of the most divisive elections in american history uh, won because of the bush v gore decision so what was his mantra what was his mission getting ready for that speech
1: uh... he a little bit was like you know sort of kennedy in nineteen sixty one plus you know kennedy had this narrow margin. George Bush had a mar- margin of 537 votes in Florida And the Supreme Court. He knew that he had to unify a country, much of which was very skeptical about him, and the speech was very effective.
0: Barack Obama is not only president, but also an author and his own speechwriter. So what do you think he was thinking when he took the office eight years ago?
1: I think, and I think there's some evidence of this too, he wanted to give a good speech, but at the same time You know, Obama was almost the opposite of many presidents who were trying to impress people with their oratory. Uh, Obama was elected, you know, with the huge help of his famous 2004 Democratic Convention speech, which brought him to national attention, Uh, other speeches during the campaign which had, you know, added to his standing. And so I think to some extent uh, Obama was shrinking back and saying, I don't want a speech with huge rhetoric that looks as if I'm trying to be Kennedy or I'm trying to be FDR. I don't want people to say that I'm nothing but an orator. And the result is that it's a fine speech, but you know, if you had to remember phrases and slogans from it, pretty hard.
0: Well, then let me go to the larger issue you touched on this with Richard Nixon. How do you deliver a speech that is in your own voice, but also looking back at what past presidents have done and what we remember today?
1: Well, one thing is that it really helps if you have a president who has a sense of history. And, you know, you'd expect me to say this, Steve, You know, I'm not, but I'm not saying this just to keep historians employed. You know, I think the best presidents are people who have, you know, not know every name or date, but have some understanding of what has worked in history for presidents and what has not. Uh, if you are becoming president and you don't know you know, about Lincoln and the Civil War in some detail, or the experience that John Kennedy had or George Washington, you're missing, you know, sort of, in a way, certain elements of a user's manual for the presidency, because any new president, while writing a speech or beginning to serve as president in the White House, is dealing with all sorts of mystifying problems with fragmentary information. He's often tired. There's time pressure. And one of the things that can give you some insight is to know, you know, in what cases in history, you know, what made presidents succeed and what made them fail. You'll never have an exact parallel, but at least it does give you some context. So I think in terms of inaugural addresses, the great addresses, the ones that you have mentioned, I'd agree with you, you know, on the ones that you you're thinking of, those are all of people who actually knew a lot about history.
0: You've had a chance to sit down with uh, current and former presidents uh, without revealing any confidential advice or questions that they've asked you. What do you think goes through their mind when they're talking with historians about how they view their place in American history?
1: Well, they will all say, we know that the way history works is that we can't really influence historians and the process has to unfold. Uh, some of them are not quite as sanguine about uh, how their historical reputation will uh, form as that might suggest. But I think again, the great presidents are people who are not too concerned about history, but not too unconcerned. And by too con- uh, too concerned, I mean, you know, doing things with the idea that this might impress some historian fifty years from now. But at the same time, you want a president who is concerned about history because, Oftentimes, a decision has to be made that's going to be unpopular at the moment, but great for the country a half century later.
0: I want to go back to to the Lincoln speech. If you had the chance to ask a question to Abraham Lincoln about that speech and how he prepared that speech, as a historian, as an author, have you thought about a question you'd ask him?
1: Yeah, I think what I would ask is, how were you able to, to write that speech with all of its literary and even biblical references, historical references, on the basis of probably less than a year and a half of formal education in your whole life. And the answer for me would be, I mean he would be too immodest to say this, but you know, it's it goes to the most basic part of the American idea, which is you don't need to have a fancy education to be a great leader. You know, you don't have to, you know, come from some, you know, family that was rich or from, you know, some other predictable part of the country. Abraham Lincoln, who had lost his mother when he was six, had a not great relationship with his father, came from a poor family, did not have a formal education, yet this brilliant, curious young mind made sure largely on his own that he read the Bible, that he read Shakespeare, that he read military history, all of which proved to be very important to him as president, and especially when he was giving a speech like that.
0: There are a couple of traditions that will unfold uh, on Inauguration Day, and I want to share with our audience some of the stories that you've heard over the years. Uh, Let's begin with the coffee, because the president-elect departs Blair House, goes across the street, meets uh, the outgoing president and first family. What has happened over the years? Uh, What can we expect this year?
1: Well, that's another, you know, this is a day of, at its best, civility and harmony, especially when you have a new presidential family that may not necessarily get along with the old presidential family and sometimes that breaks down you know in nineteen fifty three Harry Truman was the outgoing president Dwight Eisenhower was coming in they had been close until the campaign of fifty two that to some extent pitted them against each other and there was a feud there and Eisenhower was very resentful at Truman's criticism of, of him during that campaign so Truman is inside uh, the Blue Room, I think it was, with Mrs. Truman waiting for the Eisenhowers to come in for coffee, and no one is coming in, and he says, you know, find out what's going on. And the Eisenhowers had, had driven up at that north portico, but they were not getting out of the car, and they weren't getting out of the car because at that moment, Eisenhower was so angry at Truman.
0: What about the ride up Pennsylvania Avenue?
1: That oftentimes can be awkward, too, in a situation like that. Roosevelt and Hoover in 1933 had run against each other. They were not dear friends, to put it mildly. And Hoover was silent. He was depressed. He he depressed. He did not like Roosevelt. And Roosevelt said later he kept on trying to start a conversation with Hoover. And finally they saw a, a building being built along the route. And Roosevelt said something like, isn't that nice steel? And Hoover was still pretty silent, so Roosevelt gave up. But one of the better stories, from my point of view, is uh, in 1981, Reagan and Carter had run against each other, but they were a little bit more amicable between them. And Carter was, understandably, during this riot, as you were mentioning, he was trying to get reports on whether the American hostages had yet been released in Tehran. And otherwise, he was a little bit distracted. And so Reagan, in his usual manner, tried to warm up the atmosphere by Telling old stories of Hollywood and Hollywood moguls like Jack Warner of Warner Brothers, and so went up to the to the uh, side of the Capitol. Carter gets out and talks to one of his aides, and the aide said, "How did the ride with Reagan go?" And Carter said, "Ride was fine, but who is this Jack Warner? He keeps on talking about." <laughs> Didn't work.
0: There's also a, a relatively new tradition of the outgoing president leaving a letter for the incoming president, and last year we saw the letter that. George Herbert Walker Bush left Bill Clinton. What are your thoughts about that? That's
1: pretty much a a Ronald Reagan development who left a note for his successor, George H.W. Bush. Uh, I believe it was on a piece of paper that said, you know, don't let the turkeys get you down or something like that. You know, classic Reagan loved to write letters and he was close to Bush. And the credit goes to George H.W. Bush for turning this into a tradition by writing this absolutely lovely letter to Bill Clinton essentially saying you and I ran against each other and he had told him, that him this in person too was a tough campaign but you don't have to worry about me I'm not gonna go out there criticizing you and he says in that letter remember I will I will be rooting for
0: you. Has the transition process improved over the last couple of presidential transitions from your standpoint?
1: Absolutely because one of the problems was that there was usually no apparatus or process and the result was that you could oftentimes have a new president, even at the time of the Cold War, coming in and looking for national security documents that he needed to deal with the Soviet Union, and the drawers had been cleaned out. And so the result is that there are now procedures, there's now a budget. You know, a newly elected a president-elect gets money for staff. It's a much bigger operation, much smoother. Even better, you know, in the last couple of transitions, there have been these national security exercises where the aides to a new president and and sometimes the new president, incoming president himself, will go to the West Wing and their predecessors will tell them what to do if there's a national security crisis, especially, God forbid, if that happens an hour after you were inaugurated.
0: Have you done any research on the Bibles used over the years or the significance of the Bible that the president will use for his ceremony?
1: Uh, that's something that, you know, again, I was saying about how the parades will tell you a lot about a new president. I think the Bibles will too. And uh, Donald Trump, for instance, it's been reported is going to be using a fi- family Bible. Oftentimes, you will have a president who chooses a historical Bible. I seem to remember, I hope I'm getting this right, that Barack Obama used a Lincoln Bible which showed his reverence for Abraham Lincoln.
0: And Mike Pence will be using Reagan's Bible.
1: Indeed, so uh, uh, dismissing any suspense over who his political hero is.
0: As you look at the role of former presidents, we will now have Barack Obama among the youngest ever in American history. I guess you have to go back to Teddy Roosevelt to have a younger former uh, ex-president. So what's next for him?
1: Well, hopefully he's got a long life of decades in which he can continue to serve the country. And that's sort of an emblem of, I think, what we're going to see in the future, because you know, oftentimes people live longer these days, and you have presidents, former presidents, who have a much longer career as an ex-president. I mean, Jimmy Carter became an ex-president in 1981. Here we are, what, 36 years later, and fortunately he is still going strong. And so that is why you've seen this development of almost an office of an ex-president where, you know, they have centers and they decide what they're going to do with their lives. That wasn't true of Eisenhower, who was 70 when he left, and Harry Truman, you know, had had not been ill particularly, but Truman assumed that he would be in retirement.
0: And let me conclude with a question about you. Why why your interest, why your fascination with the American president and the presidency?
1: All right, well, well, this is a story. When I was eight years old, I grew up in Illinois. My family took me to the Lincoln sites in Springfield. And I was shown the chair that Lincoln sat in when he read to his children. And I asked the guide, you know, I was eight years old, you know, when Lincoln's sons didn't behave well, what did he do, did he spank them? And as I remember, the guy had said with sort of a disgusted look, no, Lincoln didn't believe in discipline. Can you believe he let those brats run wild through this house? And I heard that, and Lincoln was my man. So I began reading about Lincoln and children's books about other presidents and got fascinated.
0: You will be watching this ceremony from the vantage point of NBC, but what will you be looking for, and what do you think the American people should expect on Friday?
1: They should expect uh, the new president to give a speech that heals and unifies. That's what we should expect of every new president on inauguration day, because if you think about it, you know most, many, many, or most of the things that a president does are political. You know, a president is asking for certain programs, endorsing certain candidates. Those things inevitably divide. You know, that's true of a State of the Union. A new president is coming in and saying to Congress, "These are all the things that I want you to do. Some things you will agree with. Some things you will not." But the idea of Inauguration Day is not that a new president sets aside, you know, what he believes in and issues that perhaps not everyone will agree with, but gives some sense that he recognizes that he is, as Johnson used to say, president of all the people. He doesn't get many chances, and this is probably the most important one.
0: Michael Beschloss, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks. Great to see you, Steve. This has been the C-SPAN Radio podcast. You can follow C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast player. And a reminder, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as iTunes, Google Play Music, TuneIn, and Stitcher. Thank you for listening.